Well, hello. Welcome to Dark Stories from the Campfire in our special Thanksgiving episode. Today we present to you three dark stories that all take place on Thanksgiving. Our first dark story concerns a Thanksgiving meal that doubles as a major social event, but when the host produces a pack of tarot cards and reveals the dark secret behind them, the guests are left speechless. We present to you an unfortunate card. Mr. and Mrs. Hemmings were seated on the back patio, which overlooked their garden, enjoying a mid-morning breakfast of toast, coffee, and eggs. The serene atmosphere of sunlight and flowers that surrounded them stood in stark contrast to the hustle and bustle of the interior of the house. The cooks and servants were racing to and fro, rapidly writing messages that would have to be sent out as soon as the messenger boy returned from his first delivery earlier in the morning. For it was Thanksgiving, and what started out many years ago as a simple meal, had now turned into a major social event. Each year, the Hemmings would choose a certain theme for the celebration, and their guest list would reflect the interest. One year, when a major theater company moved into the city, the entire cast was invited, as well as the upper echelons of the city, to dine and discuss theater in general. In fact, the company's host, Mr. Hemmings, had enticed the cast to perform a few scenes from their play for the guest. Another year was the Renaissance Painters, due to an exhibit being displayed at the National Art Gallery. This year, however, was quite different from those. The theme for this Thanksgiving was Egyptian mysticism. As Mr. Hemmings finished his coffee, a servant stepped onto the patio, placing a note on the breakfast tray next to him, saying, Your package has arrived, sir. Mr. Hemmings beamed with glee. Splendid, he yelled and stood up. Please get the car ready. I need to make a quick trip into town. Mrs. Hemmings looked up at him, frowning. Must you go right now? She asked her husband. There is still so much more to do, and our guest will be arriving in a few hours. Mr. Hemmings cupped his wife's chin in his hands. Fear not, my love. I shall be back shortly, he told her. The package could elevate the topic of discussion tenfold tonight. Mrs. Hemmings grew visibly excited and asked what it could be. Mr. Hemmings' only response was to smile, wiggle his nose, and disappear to the flurry of servants and cooks bouncing around the house. By the time the first guest had arrived, the table had been set, and a large sitting room prepped with little tables containing Egyptian speaking boards and automatic writing tools, as well as couches for the guests to comfortably sit and discuss any items of interest. As more and more guests arrived, the crowds around the tables grew, and conversation changed from general merriment to serious debates about mediums, spirit photography, and the newest religious finds coming out of the expeditions in Cairo. Mr. and Mrs. Hemmings had already entered the room and were mingling with their guests, even joining in on asking questions about the future on one of the speaking boards. After an hour of socializing, Mr. Hemmings made his way to the table with the largest crowd, pulled the package he had collected earlier out of his pocket, and told the guests surrounding him he had a surprise. Unwrapping the package before them, Mr. Hemmings placed the contents on the table for all to see. They're tarot cards, one of the guests said. I have seen some spiritualists use those. Mr. Hemmings grinned. Ah, true indeed. They are tarot cards. However, these are not just any deck, you see. These are THE tarot cards that predicted the downfall and death of Mr. Walter Pennington. The newspaper publisher? Another guest asked. The one and the same, replied Mr. Hemmings. I thought the fire was an accident, though, another guest said. 
Oh, no, 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 Mr. Hemmings answered back. There was nothing accidental about what happened to him. The guests at the other tables, overhearing the conversation, began to migrate to the group around Mr. Hemmings. As you might already know, Mr. Hemmings began, or perhaps some of you don't. Mr. Pennington started Arbor Publishing with a partner, a certain Benjamin Pincock. Initially, they had no money to start, like most businesses now, and it was during those early days of their company it became noticeable as to who had the more inclination towards business and who did not. While Mr. Pincock crisscrossed the island, seeking out investors and recruiting writers, Mr. Pennington spent most of his time arguing with suppliers for rates that were far too unfair. Mr. Hemming stood and looked around, noticing that all eyes were on him now. He continued. It was also around this time Pennington developed an interest in the occult, as it was beginning to become in vogue amongst the social circles he aspired to break into. And it was one evening, not much unlike tonight, that he desired to get his cards read. The reading started out rather benign, but when the fortune teller placed the last three cards down, Pennington grew enraged, refusing to pay the fortune teller due to fraud and stormed out of the room. A few weeks later, Pincock had returned from an overseas trip, finding Pennington distraught and unwell. Pennington recovered shortly, and no more was ever thought of it. Years passed and Arbor Publishing began to grow. Neither were rich men, but they were beginning to finally live comfortably. But what happened next came to a shock to everybody. Out of seemingly nowhere, Pincock announced his retirement, and that his partner, Pennington, had bought out his half and was now the sole owner of the company. Pincock and his wife took their earnings and vanished overseas. Fortunately for Pennington, though, all those years of selling and recruiting were paying off, and he found himself a very rich man in a very short time period. But as I've already mentioned, Pennington had no stomach for business, and it wasn't too long before the empire that was erected began to crack. He borrowed heavily, then used that money to invest in real estate schemes or the horse races. Neither one ever panned out. It was said that he moved his wife and the young daughter to a downstairs bedroom where they all ended up living to save on cost. His wife endured as long as she could, when she found herself begging in the town center to buy milk for their daughter because her husband was nowhere to be found, the yoke of desperation finally dragged her down. Two days later, the bodies of Mrs. Pennington and her daughter were found in the river. When Pennington was tracked down and told of the death of his wife and daughter, he broke down crying and was inconsolable for over a week. The publishing company still existed, as it were, though its revenue was next to nothing and what little money was coming in, Pennington pocketed for himself. People around town would see him here and there, usually stumbling around, babbling incoherently. It was around this time one of the prostitutes he had been frequented moved into his house. Then for months, no one saw or heard from him. The silence was only broken when a letter was sent to a priest from a local parish. To be sure, no one knows who sent the letter, but I do know what it contained. Apparently the neighbors had grown concerned as Pennington was seen wandering around the house and the property deep into the night. Those who tried to talk to him all reported the same thing. Pennington believed his dead wife was haunting him from beyond the grave, and his late night wanderings were his attempt at getting away from her voice, her screaming. As far as anyone could tell, the prostitute who had moved in never left the bedroom on the second floor of the house. The priest did visit the house hoping to speak with anyone to ascertain for himself what the problem was and to offer guidance. For hours he knocked and waited out front, 
calling their names and doing whatever he could think of to get their attention. This was on the 15th. In the early morning hours of the 16th, a merchant riding by noticed smoke billowing out of the windows and flames on the first floor. He quickly rode off to get help. When help eventually arrived, they could see Pennington and his female companion crawling out of the second floor window. The fire team shouted up trying to get them to stop and wait for the ladder, but it was all in vain. They watched in horror as Pennington and his female companion lost their grip on the window and falling to their death as flames shot out of the second floor. An hour later, most of the house had collapsed due to the fire damage. But later, as the rubble was being cleared away, a metal box was discovered in what would have been the basement. And in the box were the bodies of Mr. and Mrs. Pincock. They had, in fact, not retired overseas after all. Mr. Hemming stopped telling the story to let the implication of his last statement sink into his guest. For a long time, they were all silent, until at length one of the guests asked, what were the three cards? Digging through the deck, Mr. Hemmings pulled out the three cards and placed them individually on the table. The first one was the Five of Pentacles, with the second one being the Three of Swords. With a little hesitation for dramatic effect, the third card placed on the table was the Tower. A few of the women gasped and the men shook their head. All upright, Mr. Hemmings added, which created a murmur throughout the crowd. It was then the dinner bell rang. For our second dark story, we travel to a small town where one of its residents has discovered the true story of the town's Thanksgiving folktale, a true story the town would rather forget. We present to you the house down the street. While it is not uncommon for small towns to have specialized folklore or urban legends, such as the old woman who microwaved her cat or broomstick Henry, what is odd, though, is that these stories, if holiday-centric, usually take place around Halloween or Christmas, which historically and ritualistically makes sense, but never during Thanksgiving. However, the little town I reside in has a distinction of having a folktale that takes place on the holiday of Thanksgiving. I have spent years attempting to determine the story's origin and tracking its morphology in the hope that I can scrub away the fiction, leaving behind what really happened and who was the ex-surgeon turned killer simply known as the Poisoner. The general story, the one you'll hear from many of the older town folk, even some claiming to have lived on the street in which the murders happened, goes as followed. On Thanksgiving Day in 1958, an unusual blizzard descended upon the town, encasing everything in ice and ceasing all traffic. Those who were planning on traveling or visiting neighbors to celebrate Thanksgiving were trapped in their house, too nervous or afraid to venture out into the storm. Many families, hoping to share a large meal, found themselves settling for TV dinners that mimicked the meals they were forced to sacrifice due to the storm. At approximately 6.30 p.m. at the Miller's residence, a middle-aged man, the collar of his coat pulled up around his face, knocked at their door. At first only the children heard it, for they were playing in the living room while their parents were in the kitchen finishing up the last of the dinner, as a table had been set and the drinks poured. But when the second knock came, their mother poked her head out and asked what the noise was. I think someone's at the door, 
their daughter responded. Their father, overhearing the brief conversation, dried his hands on the kitchen towel and made his way to the door, muttering, who could it be in weather like this? Just as the third knock came, the children's father opened the door. I'm sorry to disturb you, the stranger said, but my car froze up. I was wondering if it was possible to get some warm water and wait a while for the storms to stop. The father, not hesitating a bit, opened the door wider and invited the gentleman at his doorstep in. The guest thanked them profusely, pulling back his collar and stepping inside the house. Ah, yes, so warm, their guest said, rubbing his hands together. The mother, coming around the corner into the living room, offered to take his coat. The guest nodded, saying yes, yes. Are you new to the area? The father asked. I don't remember seeing you around here before. No, I don't live here, the stranger answered. I was on my way to visit the Hendersons. They live in the house down the street. I'm an old friend, and as I was passing through town, I thought I would surprise them and say hi. Confused, the father asked, the Hendersons? Yes, yes, their guest responded. I believe they just moved here. You might not have met them yet. Their guest lifted his nose up. Smells great, by the way. We were just about to sit down to dinner, the mother said. You are welcome to join us. Well, I wouldn't want to impose, their guest replied. Not at all, said the father. There is more than enough due to the weather. And I can't have you freezing to death in your car while waiting for the storm to break. Their guests nodded and agreed to stay for dinner. The children went back to playing on the living room floor while their parents returned to the kitchen. The guests meandered about a little while, observing the pictures on the wall and the trinkets covering the table in the hall before making his way over to the table. A few minutes later, the small bell that hung in the kitchen was rung, signaling to the children to wash up and to be seated at the table for dinner. And no sooner had the father entered the dining room with a platter filled with turkey, the guest was excusing himself, grabbing his coat. Sorry, friends, the guest told him. The weather seems to be doing all right now, and I'm sure the Hendersons are wondering where I am. With that, the stranger exited the house, pulled up his collar, and made his way into the darkness and the swirls of snow. Ten minutes later, he was knocking on the front door of the marshals, telling him that his car had frozen up on his way to visit the Hendersons, who live in the house down the street. Again, the stranger was invited in, only to leave abruptly a few minutes later. Three more houses invited him in that night. Two days later, after the blizzard had stopped, and people began to emerge from their houses, the bodies of all five families who invited the stranger in were found dead at their dinner table. It would be later concluded that each death was caused by a poison they had drunk. The stranger was never identified, nor was he ever seen again. At least, that is the story they will tell you. The real story is far more troubling. An unusual blizzard did hit the town on Thanksgiving, but not in 1958. Rather, it was five years earlier, and only two families died that night, not five. During my research, I discovered that Theodore Miller, who was a surgeon at the local hospital, and a rather successful and skilled one at that. However, it was discovered that he was performing secret surgical experiments on a few of the long-term coma patients. The person who discovered this was Todd Henderson, whose house was located down the street of Theodore Miller. Todd was the hospital's administrator, and during a conversation with a nurse, he noticed scars on one of the coma patient's arms that hadn't been there the week prior. 
One of the orderlies would later confide in Todd that they had indeed helped Theodore wheel the patient into a secret operating room late at night, which he was paid $50 to do. Todd was outraged, but rather than going straight to the hospital's executive team, he told Theodore what he knew in an attempt to blackmail him. Theodore paid at first and promised to stop. But week after week, Todd's threat of exposure was getting more and more real, and his demands were increasing. The situation came to a head when Todd showed Theodore a letter he had written and was planning on sending to the newspaper. Later that day, the clouds darkened and the blizzard moved in. Slipping out while his wife and daughter were cooking Thanksgiving dinner, Theodore braved the painful winds and the dense snowfall down the street to the Henderson house, forcing his way inside once the door was open, only to leave a short time later back to his own house. It must have been while Theodore and his wife and daughter were eating that the guilt of what he had done caught up with him. Their bodies, as well as those of the Hendersons, were discovered a few days later, all poisoned. Todd's letter was discovered in his coat pocket, but the newspaper declined to print it, for fear it would bring negative attention to the community. Rumors instantly began being traded, with some saying they had seen a strange figure roaming about in the blizzard between the houses. A decade later, the Smiths, who had met their tragic end in a car accident while on vacation, also became victims of the mysterious poisoner who was lurking around the neighborhood that Thanksgiving night. The other two families who were murdered simply never existed, and no one really knows how they became entangled in the story. As for Todd's letter, it was filed away and lost for over 60 years, before being discovered six months ago. Though the truth has finally come out, no one in the town seems to want to acknowledge it. There are many who swear up and down that the five families were indeed murdered by a stranger in the community, and that the letter refers to another, unconnected incident. It seems as though, in the end, time simply altered reality. Before we continue with our dark stories, let's take a moment to catch our breath and try to regain our senses. For our third and final dark story, we follow a loving relationship from how they met on Thanksgiving to their first date and the birth of their child. But everything has a price. We present to you, Memories. Flipping the switch to turn the machine on, the tech looked closely at the monitor, then began jotting down the information onto the clipboard he was holding. Every now and then he would glance down at the patient who, despite their head being covered in wires, was laying peacefully. In fact, the patient themselves was watching the tech work. Not nervously, mind you, but out of general curiosity. The patient had been administered a drug that contained a mixture of sedative and paralyzer. The concoction wasn't too strong because the patient was still required to speak during the initial phase of the procedure were strong enough that they couldn't flay around should the procedure become contaminated. Sometimes the patients turned violent. Across the room, another tech stood over their patient, who was also connected to web of wires, as well as drugged. The tech flipped through some of the pages on the clipboard and turned to the patient, asking if they are ready. The patient nodded as best they could. For the next few minutes, the tech asked the patient to confirm their name, their address, the year, 
and to give a verbal acknowledgement that they understood what the procedure entailed, and once they fell asleep, there was no turning back. The patient answered in the affirmative. Turning back to their partner, the tech across the room gave a thumbs up. They were ready to begin. Placing the clipboard on the machine, the tech leaned towards the patient, instructed them to close their eyes and begin to talk about their subject. For once the machine tracked the proper network, they could stop talking and go to sleep. The patient closed their eyes, took a deep breath, then began. I remember the first time I saw Julia. It was at a Thanksgiving get-together. She was sitting by the pond that was on the property, legs tucked beneath her, laughing with some friends. Initially, I was too intimidated to talk to her, at least while other people were around. I told myself that once she was alone, I would somehow gain the courage to approach her. An hour passed, then two. Never once she was not talking to someone. I began to grow relieved that I wouldn't have to embarrass myself. The sun was beginning to set, and people began to depart from the party. When I looked one last time in her direction, she was alone with her feet submerged in the pond. At this point, the patient had fallen asleep and the machine took over. I'm not sure what came over to me, but I gathered my nerve, deciding I would at least say hello before retreating to the background. I remember those blue eyes looking up at me and that gentle smile crossed her lips when I introduced myself. She cocked her head to the side and said her name was Julia. She invited me to sit down next to her. As the sun set behind us, we sat, looking into each other's eyes in the sand and the grass next to the pond. We talked and laughed for hours. Our first date was a week later. We went to see a Christmas musical. I don't remember the show at all, as a matter of fact. All I remember is, during the opening number, Julia interlocked her fingers in mine and drew herself close. The actors sang and danced while the crowd applauded and cheered but we were almost motionless, content with being next to each other. After the show, we walked the darkened street, and it was there, underneath the street lamps, that I pulled her close and we shared our first kiss. I felt like it lasted forever, or at least we both wanted it to. A year later at her birthday party, in front of her friends and relatives, I tapped the glass with my spoon and declared I had a birthday announcement. I could still hear the gasps and cries of joy as I bent down on one knee and asked Julia to be my wife, saying I can't imagine our lives would ever have been complete had we not met each other. With her hand pressed against her mouth and tears streaming down her face, Julia accepted my proposal. The rest of the evening was a blur as we both were swept up in the excitement of the situation and the many questions and congratulations that followed. I remember standing outside the manor, holding Julia's hand, while the wedding coordinator explained to us the amenities they had to offer and what package they think would be best. It didn't matter though. As soon as we set foot on the grounds, we knew this is where we were going to get married. And six months later, with the sun shining bright over Julia's right shoulder and those perfect blue eyes looking back at me, we took our vows. I remember crying as I told her I loved her, and she crying back, stumbling through her vows. We raced back down the aisle with flower petals and bubbles being thrown our way. It was only a few months later that Julia, as I was getting ready for work, wrapped her arms around me from behind and told me I was going to be a father. I can't explain to you the joy that I felt. Immediately I grabbed her hand and pulled her towards the car and told her we would be spending the rest of the day looking for our future child's first outfit. It didn't take too long to find one. A onesie with cartoon sheep playing in the grass and a blue hat covered in stars. 
Nine months later, I heard my daughter's voice for the first time. The machine next to the patient began to beep. The tech, with a turkey leg between his teeth, picked up the clipboard and began counting down the numbers displayed on the monitor. It is almost finished, he said to the other tech across the room. How is the recipient? Across the room, the other tech put down her magazine, walked over to the second patient monitor, and studied the numbers. Recipient is doing well. Looks like the memories will hold. The first tech nodded without looking, scribbled a few more notes on the clipboard, then resumed his dinner at the table near his patient. Almost appropriate, wouldn't you think, the first tech said. How's that, responded the tech from across the room. Here it is, Thanksgiving, and my patient memory begins on Thanksgiving. Seems appropriate is all, said the first tech. Silence fell between them for some time, and the only sound in the room came from the tech chewing his food and the beeping on the monitors. Sound tended to bounce off the stale, gray, smooth walls easily, so much so that one was able to tune it out quite frequently. At length, the tech across the room lowered her magazine and asked out loud, Do you ever think what we are doing is immoral? Immoral how? asked the first tech, cleaning off his hands. Well, started the second tech, I feel like we are robbing people essentially of themselves. The first tech leaned back in his chair and thought for a while before saying, When I first started here, I used to think something was wrong about this. But after some time, you notice the patients always wake up with a smile, thank you, grab their check, and go on to their lives. How important can memories really be then? Memories are what make us us, I believe, the second tech said. How do you put a price on that? Your patient is selling his most precious memories, moments he will never be able to get back to my patient who in a year will have forgotten all this happened. It is not our place to judge, the first tech responded. Desperate measures, maybe. I've seen people come in here and sell their proudest moments to an Alzheimer's patient so they can buy a car. Much like everything else, memories are a commodity now. If you want to keep working here, you'll have to get used to it and stop with that moral or immoral stuff. The second tech slumped in her chair, defeated. As a final beeping sound came from the monitors, indicating the procedure had finished, she rose and said, almost under her breath, I hope I'm never that desperate that I have to sell my most precious memories. The patient for the first tech was now awake, sitting up, rubbing their eyes, and saying they felt okay. After a while, the patient thanked the tech, reached over to accept their payment, and left the room. The second tech watched all this in despair. But as she was unhooking her patient from the machine, she noticed a smile on their face and a trickle of a tear rolling down their cheek.